So always, 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 salvation was by the grace of God. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are our friends Karen. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. And we're waiting to see if Amy will make it today. She said she'll join in when she can. So slacker. Yeah, slacker. We may we may see her, we may not. I don't know. She's got a lot of animals she has to take care of. So that's probably that's probably what's going on. And she's married. And she's married. And I I don't know, maybe I shouldn't divulge it, but I do know that she's planning uh, a pretty big trip coming up in the next week, so which is uh, probably going to be pretty cool. But if she wants to tell us about that, she can when she comes on. Uh, now, we, well, I guess, you know, by the time this episode mm-hmm. lands, we should be into the new year. And I guess every year I'd like to, I like to look at what, what sort of things we have ahead of us for the year. Um you know, do we have goals? Do we have hopes? Do we have fears of the of the coming year? Um, like this year, I have to do it this year. I have to get my master electrician's license today. Not today, but this year, because my dad's will expire and I won't have his license uh, to, to claim for the business anymore. So I have to get my license. I'm being forced into it, which is usually the way I work best. <laughs> what about you guys? What do you... What are your hopes for the year coming up? You know, I don't know. That's a good one. I haven't, I haven't sat down and pondered it quite yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't generally like to do like New Year's resolutions, but um, well, so I've noticed that oftentimes I just fail abjectly on whatever my resolutions are. So my resolutions are to gain weight and save less money. <laughs> We're gonna try this reverse psychology thing and see how failure works for me. Um, see if I can fail up a little bit. No, just kidding. Um, I really like my primary. I don't know if it's a resolution, but my primary goal for this coming year is I really like to you know, do my stupid internship. Yeah. Finally, you know, it's been like a million years, and I would. Re- and I'm really just sick to death of being single. Like, I, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Well, men. Men, you heard that. E- e- email in. Here. Step up. <laughs> email into ATTB podcast at theadventure.org, <laughs> and I will give you Karen's personal info. I'll give you her <laughs> phone number and address. No, <laughs> I will screen you and, and, and move you along in the process. You have to be at least this tall. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know if those are, I mean, I don't really have any resolutions, but I just, yeah, no, but I've got a couple of major things that I'm really hoping will change. Yeah. 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 Like I said, is what the internship leads me to, which is the ability to finally license. mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the other is, you know, just personal. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I don't necessarily like resolutions they always fail but i just can't ever seem to help it that with the changing of that calendar it just feels like it feels like 
new opportunity, even yeah. in ways that your birthday doesn't. You know, to me, a lot of times my birthday comes and goes, and I was like, okay, that was another day to go to work, and I just continue my day. And yeah, I I change I change the number, uh, you know, on my age. But for some reason, that changing of the calendar just feels like a renewal and potential either opportunity or just um, looking forward. So I did yeah. hear a good New Year's joke once that that basically says. I've decided that my next business venture will be a gymnasium called Resolutions. <laughs> but it will only be a gymnasium for the first three weeks of the year. For the rest of the year, it will be a wine bar. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a sound business plan. <laughs> going to the gym. I'm going to the gym. See, I'm dressed in my sweats and I'm going to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Well, I see that Amy has joined us. Amy, are you there? There she am, is. Am I getting a lot of feedback because I'm actually driving? Oh well, uh, not not terrible, I suppose. If you mute when you're uh, when you're not talking, we'll be okay. Okay, real so. quick, Matt. I think you should set as a resolution to take your son to Iceland. He has no idea how easy it is. And it's not expensive. And he was so intrigued when I was telling him yesterday. <laughs> so just thought I'd tell you. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's uh, that's the trip Amy is planning on taking here. The big old the big trip that uh, that she'll be going on. So that's that's gonna be cool. Maybe we'll get some pictures and stuff from from there. I've never been there. Be interesting to see. And uh, what I was talking to your husband uh, Calvin, Amy, and he was saying something like, "How long are the days there this time of year?" Four hours. <laughs> Four hour days. Yeah. That's that so, is uh, something. From like ten forty five a.m. until like three forty five or yeah three forty five. I think was what it was. That that's a little, that's a little longer than Alaska. I mean, I, when I lived in Alaska for a million years, and yeah, the days get super short. Super short. Yep. The sun right. the sun comes up, but it's like just above the southern horizon and. You know, if you're out during your lunch hour driving around, if you know, if you live if you live there and you're off during your lunch hour and you're out running some errands or whatever, like you're absolutely blinded if you're driving straight south, but any other direction is fine. You know, it's just yeah, and then it just dips back down. Yeah, it's weird. Very weird. Very weird. Well, this is good because I've actually been there a couple of times and one time when I was there there was no night. And yeah. I am very dependent on darkness to be able to sleep and uh, it was horrible like to me that was far worse than living through hours and hours of darkness because i just couldn't sleep so yeah that was miserable very very confused circadian rhythm uh, yes sorry i muted again because the car <laughs> <laughs> so. well that's all that's all fascinating it's uh and I guess I've said many times, I've never even been out of the country. Someday, maybe. Maybe I'll get a passport and get out of here sometime. Right, well, we're a, like I was saying, we're a hub for Iceland Air. And so it's like super easy. You just go yeah. to Denver and then they take you to Iceland. And then, yeah. And because we're a hub, they have all these deals. Like if their flights aren't full, they're cheap. Mm. Yeah. So. Fascinating. Yeah, it's cool. Are we recording, by the way? Oh, yes. yeah. Okay, yeah. Yep. Well, I just wondered, like, since we're doing all this banter. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. Yes. So keep the profanity to a minimum today, okay? 
right. I'm on it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our topic for today since we've been going for a bit now. Uh, we are going to today be continuing in the book of John. We're going to be talking about chapters two through four. We've talked a little bit about the book of John already. We've seen Jesus's baptism. We've seen, uh, you know, John's perspective on Jesus's life. And we've seen that John, John shares a lot of information that the other gospels simply don't. They don't even touch on, on the, some of the things that John does. There's very little inter intersection between uh, John and the Synoptic Gospels. But where we're going to start today is a, it's a place where I actually have some question about it myself because I don't know if this fits here. And so as I revealed, as I tell you what's going on here, you guys can help me decide if it fits here or something else is going on because there is there's an event that takes place in the book of John starting in ch uh, chapter 2 verse 13 and it's known as Jesus cleansing the temple John places this event very very early in Jesus's ministry like it seems like even before he begins a public ministry and then the other gospels place it at the end and so I have seen, in fact, one of the timelines I'm looking at with this shows that this happened twice. And that seems odd to me because they're so similar, but not it's not in the realm of impossibility. So what do you think? Did, did it happen twice or is it just different perspectives of the same story? I think it must be different perspectives of the same story. They're so similar. I agree. Mm-hmm. What about the other two of you? I think the similarity was it was probably one, just a different take, different perspective. Yeah. Okay. So I don't really know where this falls. I mean, I guess I mean we'll talk about it here. This is where John places it, and the way that he lays it out, it seems like it happens very early. But it seems like when the other guys talk about it, it just feels like it's happening like right before his death. So the only I, shroud of, of doubt that I would have is is historically how they just haven't been able to get it. Mm -hmm. That could it have happened two times? See, I've heard of it's, seen it's uh, possible. I've seen other sources that say it happened twice. So I don't know. Right, uh, right. What do you say, Karen? So the <clears throat> the only the biggest oddity to it happening before he starts his ministry is who is this guy? Mm -hmm. So later in the ministry, everybody knows who he is. And if he shows up in the synagogue, you know, swinging a swinging a, a homemade whip and pushing everybody out and shouting about things, well, now he's known as a local rabbi and he's got, you know, thousands of healings under his belt and everyone knows who he is. And so his authority seems more natural mm -hmm. to the average person, not necessarily the local leaders. So it casts a different light. So there's one part in the story where they say to him, what sign, so in verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? That's the only part of the story that could possibly be construed to make it make sense earlier in his ministry. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, who are you? Who are you to come in here swinging a whip around and shouting? Whereas later he had already publicly stated, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. I don't know. 
it's it that's not an absolute it just it's the one part of the story that makes it seem more possible that it happened earlier and i mm-hmm. honestly i would have to put that right next to the other gospels do the other gospels report that same question that is a good question i i'll look that up you guys yeah yeah because so here's the premise of what happens whether it happens once whether it happens twice because i think the way i'm going to handle it is we will talk about it here because we're talking about john's gospel and then i think later when we get closer because to jesus is coming into into the into jerusalem at the end of his ministry i think we'll talk about it again because I see a potential, I think like Karen was alluding to here just now, that depending on when it happened sort of makes a difference with, with the message that is getting across from Jesus. Uh, you know, the, 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 the essential message is, is the same, but the context just makes it different. And so what happens is Jesus comes into the temple. It's Passover time. And he finds that there are people in there. I say finds, I suppose he's known this before because we we saw before that he was there when he was 12 years old and teaching people and they were amazed by him. So this wouldn't have been the first time he saw this, but he goes in there and people are selling animals for sacrifices, different, various different animals, uh, cattle, sheep, uh, turtle doves, all kinds of different animals for this. So I was looking that up, not that, not to stop you there, but that's fine. What I what I found is that there was a currency, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a mm-hmm. currency all to itself for the temple. Yeah. So this business in this cattle cell was people would come from all over mm-hmm. having different currency. So they would actually like like a banking system, trade their currency for temple currency mm-hmm. to either to purchase the animals or to make, you know, donations, all that kind of stuff there in in the temple itself. Mm hmm. And, you know, I suppose this could have possibly been a convenience issue um, or maybe I should re- I should rephrase this. This probably could have started out as a convenience issue because people are coming from a long distance. If you're going to try to bring your animals with you for sacrifices, that's going to be very difficult to do. And so somebody has this idea of, you know what, why don't we just. And in fact, I think there might have even been provision for this back in Leviticus, if I remember, for certain things. It's like, go to where you're going to go and and obtain something for sacrifice there and then offer it. So you don't have to travel for, you know. Days on end. Days on end, hauling along a, a lamb for, for slaughter or whatever, you know, if you can't afford that, if you recall, you know, you could do two turtle doves or whatever. And so if people are coming from all over the place, now that the Jews have been kind of scattered all over the place since the exile, like you were saying, Tracy, they're probably coming in with different currencies. And so we come in and let's have a let's have a basic rate of exchange so that we can know that we're all on the same standard here. And we'll try to do this for convenience, but it would appear that it became just a means of profit. It just turned into a business and people were coming in and now they're basically forced to buy by not forced but i mean if you're going to do do this you have to buy the sacrifice there you have to do it with the money that um that you've just exchanged for who knows if you're getting a fair uh bingo uh, it's like those guys who hang out at the front doors at the front entrances of mexican hotels it's like yeah no we'll we'll uh we'll swap out your currency for you Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah. That's you know, so turns into I, some crooked endeavor. So I'm looking at, so every, every other gospel puts this at the beginning of the Passion Week. So by then he's established in his, in his, um, ministry it, with the locals, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm just going to read Luke's as an example. So this is in Luke 19. When Jesus em- entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then the follow-up, the only follow-up, and this is from Matthew and Mark, there's very little follow-up, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. See, he's well into his ministry and his surprising action, right, his disruptive actions, he's protected by his local, the local love for him. So no one says to him, by what authority do you do this? Mm Mm-hmm. So that makes it sound like it happened twice. Mm-hmm. So because I think none of the other gospels, but John report that the, you know, where the leaders come to him and they, or the Jews, it wasn't even the leaders that said the Jews came to him and said, by what authority do you do this? And he said, tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Mm-hmm. And he said that is his authority, which is a very cloaked, like that's a very cloak and dagger prophetic statement. Like nobody's going to understand that. We right. get that because we, we, you know, we're reading in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like, what kind of answer is that? That's not direct communication in any way, shape, or form. Right. Anyway, it kind of makes it sound like it happened twice mm-hmm. if all those details from John are actually in there. Right. Right. So I think, I mean, I think that's the way. I think that's the way we'll handle it here. And I, you know, listeners, you can you can make your own assumptions from it, or you know, make your own conclusions from it as you as you read through it and see what you think. Because um, I I don't know. It's a it's a it's a question in my mind. What do you say, Amy? Well, something that occurs to me is that immediately after this is when Nicodemus comes and talks to him privately, mm-hmm. and so maybe it does happen twice, and there's a sense in which. Nicodemus is finally struck by his authority. Well, not finally, but I mean, you know, initially struck by his authority. So that's kind of an interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you're not familiar with this story, Jesus has come in. He's found all this crooked dealings going on, uh, you know, preying on people who are just trying to fulfill their religious obligation, if you want to call it that. And he starts driving people out. He literally makes a whip and starts driving people out, turning over tables, making a general mess of things and just get out of here. Don't, he says, don't make my father's house, a house of merchandise. The extra reading that I was doing this week was that also in, in what had happened is not only were these, their merchants there and stuff like that, but apparently they were in, in cahoots with the, the priest, so it was it was a big business, basically the exchange, not giving a good exchange rate, like you're saying, and then charging just extraordinary prices for like the cattle and everything the you know the sacrificial <laughs> animals that they had to do. They were charging, they said, ten times more than what they should have been charging. Yeah. So really, they were just taking advantage of of the people that were coming in there, and I think that was probably you know along with you know, the selling, the the bartering, the, 
you know, just the crooked dealings was what made Jesus, let's just say it, go off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody who ever who's ever been to a theme park or a movie theater or any of these places, you know, and if you want the stuff they're going to sell you there, if you want to eat, you're going to you're going to pay through the nose, you know, and so this is how the temple is being treated. Remember what happened in the past when people mistreated the temple. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that got them exiled, you know, and and here here Jesus is coming in. If he's coming in at the beginning of his ministry, you know, we know that he's the son of God and and he is making a statement here. It's like, don't make this place a place of business. That's not its purpose. We are told in John that the disciples were reminded of Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So as his disciples that he had accumulated at this point, which was not very many, um, or at least when I say not very many, I mean, I guess I don't know how many people are following him. When I say disciples, I tend to translate that into my brain as apostles. And I don't, we haven't really even talked about his pick choosing of apostles yet. But the people who are following him at this point were remembering um, that phrase that they had read through their studies and uh, seeing once again that Jesus is fulfilling uh, prophecy. But yeah, this uh, this question they're asked, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that's uh, that's going to be, that's going to sound like a nonsensical answer to these guys who are asking him this because Again, we look at it in hindsight and we know and John looks at it in hindsight and he knows that Jesus is talking about his body. He is talking about his death and resurrection. Spoiler alert, Jesus will die and be raised up uh, in three days. Um, Go ahead, Tracy. You know, and I think, too, that was a source of national pride is their temple. Mm -hmm. And so for Mm -hmm. him to say, you know what, you could tear this thing down and I'll build it back up in three days. They didn't get the gist of that. But, you know, when you look at it and how long it took Solomon to build it, wasn't it like 43, 46 years, mm-hmm. something around that time frame? That well, was, that's, yeah. That was a lot. That was that was like a slap in the face. Well, and the, the Jews here, they say it took 46 years to build this, and you're going to do it in three days. And uh, historians, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this yet another version of the temple that, had to be built during the the intertestamental time between Malachi yeah, and Herod's temple. Yes. This Herod's temple. Uh-huh. So this is the third version of it that's been here. And, um, you know, that gives us a little clue that once again, it got torn down and rebuilt mm-hmm. in, in that in that time. Well, I, I think, too, the Romans kind of added to that when I was reading to this, too, that they they helped in the process. They gave money. They, you know decorated helped decorate it did some additions that kind of thing yeah yeah so they they don't get it but this is this is jesus putting this out there and john says that later they remembered he said this and then that they understood that he was talking about himself and it gave them the ability to believe it says they believed the scripture and the word what jesus had said So an interesting start to to a ministry, if you will, if we want to if we want to look at that as the potential start. Um, John goes on, he says, many believed when they saw Jesus's miracles, 
but he didn't commit to them. He, the way John writes it, or at least in the New King James, he says he didn't commit himself to them. Meaning, as I took it, is that he didn't put himself in their trust. He didn't rely on them, uh, largely because he didn't need their testimony. Because, uh, as it says, he knew what was in man. So he knew that he knew that these people following him and listening to him uh, had a probably had a ten- tendency, like most humans, to be fickle and untrustworthy. Uh, Amy. Yeah, it's kind of a disturbing verse mm-hmm. because he's basically saying, or, you know, it, it's acknowledging the fact that we are so corrupt in ourselves that Christ put no trust in any man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that to me is like, ugh. Um, but you can see why. Like, we are fickle and, and we have our own agendas. We're always trying to get something. You know, I mean, the unconverted heart is seeking its own way always and so even as followers of christ they weren't really trustworthy one time i heard a sermon it was about peter's character (laughs) and it said and it was told and it was spoken by a man in the first person so he was talking like he was peter right and at one point he says and then i met jesus and over time Jesus' character transformed me from a loud, foul-mouthed fisherman to a loud, foul-mouthed Christian. (laughs) I've known a few of those. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, uh uh-huh, right? So human nature is human nature, and God works with us as we are. and, And that means he knows where to put his trust and where not to put his trust. Like, that's part of it. Mm hmm like, where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Like, think, you know, think back over your own life and where would we be without that prodding? You know, we're going to get into the Holy Spirit and how it works and being born of the Spirit, you know, in 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 John 3. But but like, think about what that means for each one of us. Like, that is that is your day to day prompting to be better than how you were born <laughs> mm-hmm. like your naturally occurring self ain't great <laughs> right yeah we uh you know we like to look at little babies and oh they're so cute and innocent and they are you know but when they're hungry they scream when their diaper's dirty they scream when they're tired they scream you uh, know every fair, i do that yeah no mm. <laughs> But everything is about them, and they have to learn that they aren't the center of the universe. They have to learn patience, and they have to learn, you know, that okay, if other people are going to take care of you, that you that you need to uh, show a little gratitude, you know, that kind of thing. But that comes we with the to... ability. Like yeah. they're born without even the ability. The right. only the only ability that they have to get their needs met when they're little is to howl about them. Mm-hmm. Like before they can even articulate a need, they can feel a need, right? Mm-hmm. And by the time they get by the time they get a little older, you know, they can come to you and tell you when they need to use the bathroom mm-hmm. and you can go and help them and then diapers phase out, right? right? And then after a while, you get annoyed with them. Like if they know better and they have an accident in their pants, it's like, "Why did you do that? You know better. You know." You know, right? They're getting older. Their abilities have expanded. You know, the Bible makes plenty of references about how, you know, comparing the milk of the gospel versus the meat of the gospel. The milk of the gospel is Jesus loves me, this I know, basically, right? 
And then when you get to what Paul calls the meat, now you're a mature Christian. You have teeth. You can feed yourself. You know, you can chew this up yourself. You can put some thought into it. Come on, grow up, right? It's this call to grow up. And maturity begets independence in those ways. Mm -hmm. And it does it in a very physical sense in babies versus toddlers versus little kids versus teenagers versus adults. Whatever an adult is, I can't even tell anymore. You know, and in and in Christianity, it's the same thing. Like at first, we're like, "Oh my goodness, I'm I'm wowed by Jesus' love, and I just love Him, and I love everyone else, and I love, 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 love." And then it's like, right now, we're going to refine your character. Now we're going to teach you how to walk through the world and make a difference. Now we're how you know, and it and the lessons go on, and it's not we're not. I mean, if you're if you're to use a baby as a comparison and say that's all they'll ever be. You're missing the point. They're fine as they are. They're a baby, though. They don't mm -hmm. have the ability to do any of that stuff themselves. Yeah. No, and I, no, I'm with you 100% on that. But we are, nevertheless, we are born selfish. Yes, they're unable to do those things for themselves, but they don't care. All they care is that their need gets, gets taken care of. Um, it's all they think about. And Amy, I'm going to need you to tell your husband to quit barking. <laughs> but, and, you know, we see. I thought it was muted. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> we see that that's, you know, that's a fair thing for a baby to be like, okay, take care of me. And we have, we have to grow out of that. You know, yeah. some people do, some people don't. But as Jesus is looking at these people, he's like, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't rely on you guys. And uh, certainly not, not at this stage of things. I certainly can't put my trust in you so he doesn't now we get into chapter three and chapter three contains the most famous verse of the bible which we will get to here in a bit um but without a doubt it's the most it's about it's the most famous verse of the bible and the context is that there is a man named nicodemus who is described as being a ruler of the jews he's part of the pharisees and the pharisees were very big on keeping the law, keeping the record of the law, making sure that everybody knew how to do it, what to do, and I suppose to some degree made sure people were doing it. Um, because, you know, in the past, people hadn't been doing it, and the nation had suffered for it. And so now we have this guy, Nicodemus, who's talking to Jesus early in, in Jesus's ministry, was when Jesus is just barely starting to make a splash here, but Nicodemus is interested in him, and he recognizes something in Jesus where he says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he's, he's seeing that there's something special about Jesus. He knows that this is not just another teacher. This isn't just, you know, some other guy wandering the nation and 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 talking and I would I would assume by now Jesus has probably been preaching and I would also assume that Nicodemus either witnessed or uh, heard about what had happened in the temple, assuming that 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 event happened early in the ministry. And Jesus' answer to him baffles Nicodemus. He says, "Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." And Nicodemus does not understand that phrase at all. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? I've often wondered if this culture that we read about 
didn't understand allegory very well because Jesus a lot of times presents people with allegorical statements and the people who follow him the closest either don't understand what he's saying at all or they take it entirely literal and and don't get it. In this case, Nicodemus most certainly doesn't get it. I think he's taking Jesus's phrase here as as completely literal. And how can how can this even happen? I don't I don't know what you're saying right now. And Jesus answers, unless you're born of the water and the spirit. I need to actually look this one up. Hang on a second. So it says it's in verse five. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So this water and spirit. um, I used to take this phrase meaning that you had to be baptized. And in further study, further discussion with other people, I've come to realize that this really isn't when he's talking about being born of water. He's not talking about baptism, but he's really talking about uh, natural childbirth. Unless you're, I mean, ladies, you know, you've given, if you've given birth, um, the water breaks, the baby, you know, that helps the baby. It's, it's, uh, the baby has been carried in that water for water, ambiotic fluid, I guess, for, for nine months. So you, unless you are born and then you are reborn with the spirit, then this whole idea of entering the kingdom of heaven can't happen because the kingdom of heaven is completely new. It's something very different from what people have considered in the past. Uh, Amy. Well, I, I've always thought it refers to baptism and I, I guess I feel like there's nothing wrong with that. Like they were always telling people, you know, to repent and, and be baptized and follow the kingdom of God. And so I feel like, especially with someone like Nicodemus, like he's gone out in the dark to meet with a teacher that he he perceives there's something going on, Mm -hmm. um, but he's not quite willing to publicly acknowledge him. And so I feel like Jesus is letting him know, Hey, publicly acknowledge me. It's like that verse. I'm trying to find it in Romans. Um, that says, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is um, the the Christ, then you will be saved. So okay, I can Romans. Uh, anyway, yeah, I can I can climb on board with that. But where I, people have had trouble with this phrase, though, I think comes when you get to the thief on the cross who accepts Jesus at the last minute, and Jesus tells him, "You're going to be you're you know you're going to be in the kingdom." We have no indication that that man was baptized. However. Going by your um, your parameter there, Amy, he did publicly claim his his uh, allegiance to Jesus there, and so yeah, that's a valid point. I can see that. So I guess you know it could go it could go several ways, you know. But you know, I always you know since you brought that up, I always looked at it as drastic times, drastic measures. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. they were all hanging on a cross. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. You know what draws me out when we were what we're reading in John here is that I don't know, maybe help me out here, guys. I'm not sure if this is a little bit of sarcasm or, you know, because he's having to meet him in secret and he's just not sure. But in seven, when Jesus tells him, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Mm -hmm. It's like, are you surprised? 
Right. What don't you get? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because because he goes on in verse ten. He says, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things?" Yep. You know, this is these are concepts that ought to be understood, but they have spent so much time looking at everything into strictly literal yes. terms. Yes. And it's it's like, You're what do I? Point. Yeah, I have to do these things, and Jesus is like, "You've got to change your mindset." Yes. That's what he's trying to get across, and Nicodemus isn't getting that. So these verses are so precious to me because I remember going, like my mom was good about having family worship. My mom was good about um, teaching us the Bible and whatnot, but I was not a, uh, like I wasn't really a Christ follower myself until my teenage years. And I remember reading through these passages when I was like maybe 15 or 16 and thinking, what does that mean? And so I feel like I can relate to Nicodemus a lot. Like I need things to be deeply understood. And, and so I struggled with these exact passages and I'm very sympathetic with Nicodemus because I want to really understand what the spirit means. Mm -hmm. I I just love these passages. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's valid. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if we as Christians spend enough time contemplating the Holy spirit. We spend a lot of time and it's good time, but we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, thinking about Jesus, preaching about Jesus, reading about Jesus, singing about Jesus. Um, But we spend very little time doing those things about the Holy Spirit, which is the whole, I mean, the Holy Spirit is who Jesus left us with when he went back to heaven. And, And so this now is where we get our interaction and we don't, maybe we don't spend enough time in it. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic thought, because when you look at the passages where Jesus is promising that, he says, no, it'll be good if I go away so the Spirit can come to you. Uh, Wow, that's interesting, because he's essentially telling us that his absence will allow us to get to know the Spirit, and in his mind, that's more important. That's really interesting. Another level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, another level. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting, so verse eight is kind of interesting to me because of what, I mean, what I'm, I'm assuming, what language do you guys think that Nicodemus and Jesus were speaking? Generally, don't we figure Aramaic? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I know in general, Jesus spoke Aramaic. I don't know if that's because that was the common people's language. I don't know if the. Pharisees and Sadducees and whatever spoke a different language. Hebrew. But yeah, I, I don't know. But like, there's a note in my Bible. So in verse eight, it says the wind. So there's this odd connection between wind and the spirit. And, I, and I've and i never quite understood it. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And I go, huh? Right. So then my Bible has a little letter by it. And if I go down and I read the letter, it says the Greek word for spirit is the same as that for wind. Mm -hmm. But were they speaking Greek? Like I, I understand the value point of what they're saying. They're talking about basically to me, they're talking about how the spirit acts Mm -hmm. and what it looks like in action and what that looks like in people's lives. But how is this connected to Greek? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm a little confused here. Yeah, yeah, through the translation and such. Yeah, I don't know. So I, 
one thing that might be helpful is just that according to my accordance software, uh, this was recorded in Greek, but that just means that John wrote it down in Greek. I don't know <clears throat> what they were speaking that night. You know, potentially they had the conversation in Aramaic and then John's writing the whole thing in Greek. But but my. Oh, OK. Yeah. Mm. So so it matters for the written translation. Right. And it might have it and that written translation, whatever language they were originally speaking, I can't imagine it would have been Greek. I mean, this is first century Israel and, and a Pharisee of, you know, this is a lawyer. So I, I can't imagine they would have been speaking Greek because the Greeks at that point had no authority, right? But then why did John write? You know, we know John was young. We don't know what age he was when he wrote this, you know, but for whatever reason he wrote it in, okay, that's interesting. So that helps me understand that, that it is a translative note, not a conversational note. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's all interesting, but you know, you find those words in there, and those there's times when those words come up, and you you I think you got to take, you got to pay attention to them because I think there's there's probably something in there, and who knows maybe D, maybe Jesus did sort of have dual meaning there because there's I've got a note on verse, um, verse three when he's talking about being born again, they're saying that okay, let me read it here. It says as heaven was a surrogate title for God, occasionally Jewish sources used above in the same way. So born from above, which is the likeliest literal sense here, can mean born from God. Plays on words were common in antiquity and are also present in many places in John's gospel. So uh, it's very possible that Jesus is saying one thing that sort of has dual meanings, you know. Um, and so being born again, um, being born from above, being... Um, you know the wind and spirit. I mean, we know accepting we know that the word. Go ahead, Tracy. Accepting it, proclaiming it, just like we had talked about before. Mm -hmm. I think that all all works in. Yeah, because this wouldn't be the first time that we've heard that concept of wind and spirit being sort of inter in, interchangeable. Back in Hebrew, that word ruach, that um, you know, it says when God put a spirit into man, it's talking about the breath, the literally you know wind into man. And so, so that idea of wind and spirit being interchangeable isn't necessarily um, out out of, out in left field either. Jesus says some things here that would, again, probably not not be very easy for for Nicodemus to interpret. He says uh, in verse thirteen, he says, "No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven." Now, I'm even reading that in retrospect and. You know, looking at that in a literal sense, some of that doesn't really necessarily make sense. Assuming he's talking about himself, because my question is then, how is he in heaven at this time? Is he speaking figuratively? I think he, he must be. But at the same time, we've seen in the Old Testament that he's come back and forth many times. So maybe he's talking about that. Um, I'm my, my guess is Nicodemus doesn't totally get it either. Uh, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is referring, uh, referring back to that uh, when, when the Israelites were being bitten by poisonous snakes in the wilderness, and Moses created 
that uh, that bronze serpent up on a pole, and he, they would put that serpent up, and people would, if they looked at that serpent after being bitten, then they would be basically cured of the poison. And this is re- Jesus referring to that, and see, and showing that that was a symbol of himself at this point. So this is a terrific passage because it shows how much of a curse the Jewish people thought of someone who was crucified. And and yet when it's a very fascinating thing because being bitten by a snake and then having a bronze snake be the thing that is your salvation, that's weird. That Mm -hmm. is super weird. And yet that is what the scripture describes. And so in the Greek mind, of course, this is also going to be like, what? Something that was someone who was crucified as your Lord. And yet as soon as the gospel goes to the Gentile people, it spreads like wildfire. Why is that? Um, It's an interesting thing that the spirit moves on people to look at this detestable thing and see a way out of death and sin and you know all the sorrows of this life. So I find that passage to be very intriguing because the way God works is so unpredictable to us. Yeah, I remember thinking looking back at that, you know, at the time and you're like, why in the world would the snake be a thing to look at? But back then a snake lifted up on a pole was viewed as a defeated snake. That it, mm, it indicated that it had been you know, if a shepherd had been out amongst his flock and a snake was out there and he killed that snake and was able and lifted it up, that was a defeated serpent. And nice. and and so in when when we look at it now as Jesus, because he's talking about being lifted up. Nicodemus doesn't know what he's talking about here, but we look at it back and look at it and understand he's talking in some ways literally being lifted up on that cross but uh, but as also being lifted up allegorically as someone to look to to and and this this is the person this is the person who is going to save us this is what's going to do it um and yeah as a as a crucified person doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense until i think it's paul who says he became sin for us and so then you see defeated sin. Uh, that is stuff that make, takes more thought than I have time for right now. Well, that's actually the, the text that I was just going to say. That's from 2 Corinthians 5. And it's in verse 21. And it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he became the thing that we are as a form of substitution and paying the penalty so that we could become the thing that he is. And that's, I've always connected that um, to the lifting up of the serpent, like lift up the serpent, look at it as an act of faith, right? If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. And then he became sin. So I've followed that exact same train of thought in, in like a big sort of loop of symbolic fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get to the most famous verse in the Bible, and I don't know any Christian that wouldn't know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Of course, depending on what what version you're reading, the wording is probably a little different than that. And chances are I probably mixed a couple of versions there. But But the gist of it is the same. That is right there. That statement is the core of the gospel message, is that 
God sent Jesus. And if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. Now, here's the thing, though, that as famous as that verse is and as inclusive as that verse is, it's in a context of an entire speech that get, that Jesus gives, starting with that part about the Son of Man being lifted up and moving into verse 17, also beyond it, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That part is so vital for us to remember. He didn't just come to save us. He also specifically did not come to condemn us. So think about this, too. Even probably, you know, three times as many people as are Christians know that verse. Mm -hmm. And yet they don't see the one part of it that's so vital for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Like people are like, I like Jesus. He's friendly, but God is dangerous Mm. and I'm scared of him. And he's trying to fry me, you know? And yet here it is. I mean, plain and simple, the most known verse simply says, God loved the world so much. He gave his only son. So we have to think about that. We have to embrace the fact that it is him and it is the father initiating the reconciliation. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's excellent. Yes. God is the one who saved it. God loved the world and didn't send him to condemn us. He could have sent him to condemn us. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he could have. I mean, we deserve it. When has mankind ever acted correctly and done the right things? You know? Uh, if we have, it's probably been accidental or or through <laughs> or through such tremendous effort that it's impossible to keep up. Uh, hey, I've had one or two really good moments in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I said every one of us could do some stuff accidentally once in a while. <laughs> uh, Jesus' statement in in 18 is interesting. He says, he who does not believe is condemned already. See, that's an aspect of this, too, that we that that Christians, many Christians, not all Christians, but I think uh, many of us forget at times is that. We were already condemned. Sometimes people think that God is looking for reasons to punish us, like God is looking for reasons to send us to hell. But the reality that Jesus says here is you guys were already condemned. You were already headed that direction. And that's why I'm here. Sin had basically already defeated you. And until we accept and believe in Jesus and his work on our behalf, that's where we're going. We're going, we're going down. And this is where Jesus stepped in to lift us up. He says, this is the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. So condemnation does exist but it's only for those who continue down that path of darkness that this world starts us down and jesus came to lift us out of that he says he who does the truth comes to the light so that i take that as being jesus explaining that rebirth to nicodemus look you were you were headed down a dark path all everything was darkness you were headed to destruction And look, God sent his son to save everyone, to pull you out of condemnation, put you put you in a place that you never could have put yourself. And it's going to require you to change your way of thinking, to change your your way of thinking that you're going to be the one who does it. See, and this is why I'm kind of impartial to 
to Nicodemus is because he's in high standing. He's a person that knows the law, that people look at him as being an expert in the law. But yet, Jesus is breaking this down for him, saying, you know what, you really don't know, which is hard. It's hard for a human to, you know, to be think they're an expert in something and yet be told you don't get it. Yeah, I'm here to tell you this is what it is. And I think this is this is why I I can, you know, empathize with him and sympathize with him is that it's, you know, he's dedicated his whole life to to knowing these laws, to putting them forward, to being a teacher and then being told that you don't get it. You know, and I think, too, that's that was his process. That's the process that he has to go through by doing it even in the dark. It's like, you know what, I really can't do this out in the light because I'm looked at, you know, in such a high standing, I need to do it in the dark until I could get my head wrapped around it. So I was thinking about what you guys were talking about, about no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Mm-hmm. There was this thing in the back of my memory, and, I, and it took me a minute to find it, but it's, it's a verse in Titus. So this is, ver- this is Titus 3, starting in verse... Um, let's start in verse four. It's Paul. So his sentences are forever long, right? So I'll start in verse four, which is actually the beginning of the sentence. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So there's, I realize it's just a turn of phrase, right? It's not, it doesn't ever say like, well, this is what this phrase means, right? But it's a similar phrasing, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting. That was Mm -hmm. all. It was, mm-hmm. I was, it was bugging me. It was in the back of my head and I couldn't quote it. <laughs> I knew it was in there someplace. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there's, a, I think there's a lot in that phrase that has to be unpacked. We could probably spend a lot of time just looking at that verse and trying to understand what it means. Um, and I think we just, you kind of just have to come to that general, that general conclusion of that, you know what, there's something new happening. Get ready for something new. Nicodemus, you're going to have to understand this. Uh, modern day Christians, you're going to have to understand this, that it's not about what you do. It's about what the son of God is doing. It's about what God himself has chosen to do uh, on your behalf. So that, I don't know, that, that, that whole conversation is, is rather interesting. And I, I think we can, we can, we can glean a lot from that and we can all learn a lot from that interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. I think a lot of us, we often find ourselves in that pharisaical uh, line of thinking of, you know, what do I have to do to get right with God? And, and you know, am I going to eat the right things? Am I going to go to church on the right day? Am I going to, uh, you know, am I, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And um, while those things have value, those are not going to be the things that save you. It goes further than that. So I agree with you, of course. Um, and I think it's so it's so freeing when you realize that he fought this giant battle for us and set us free. But then just those verses that 
Karen was reading in Titus, I went a little further and Paul goes on to say, um, I want you to affirm constantly that those who believe in God must be careful to maintain good works. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, right? Um, because we tend to we tend to categorize things based on these semantic arguments that we have gotten into in the past. And yet Paul over and over again says, God set you free so that you could do good works. And he doesn't mean you have to work your way towards salvation. He is saying, go feed the fatherless. Please mm-hmm. go take care of my children. Please remember the widow. Please remember, you know, et cetera. And so that's what he's referring to. And he's, he's basically saying, so instead of you spending all your time trying to fulfill the law and doing all these religious works, um, I'm going to set you free so that you can do what I really need you to do. And also so that you will just be free because you are already my child and I love you with all my heart. So in James, James chapter two, starting in verse 14, it says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So I think what we're talking about here is the difference between head knowledge and integrated heart knowledge. So you can know something in your head, and but it's kind of over there. You don't necessarily over interact with it and you don't necessarily integrate it into you. But when something becomes heart knowledge, and, and by that I mean love, So when your heart is captured, your behavior will change immediately in answer to the call of love. That cannot be commanded by anger, short term, maybe, but it it won't be sincere. And so if, if it's true that what God is after from us and with us is relationship and love, then our free will has to be engaged, which means that our faith has to be a heart faith and heart faith breeds works. And that those works are not our salvation. They're the result of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm. I like that. Yeah. 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 I like that too, Karen. That was well said. I think the other part of it is, um, you know, once the spirit is in you, you start to see what you couldn't see before. Mm-hmm. And so you were, potentially only seeing, okay, how do I get saved? How do I, you know, et cetera. Whereas once you are, you're looking around and you're thinking, oh, that person doesn't have clothes. That person doesn't have a warm coat. Uh, you know, and, and you start to see around you the needs of others and, and, and you start to realize the trouble that other people are in. You know, there's a lot of situations that you become aware of with other people. And I think that's the enlightenment of the spirit. Yeah, it all becomes a very different way of thinking about it all and submitting to a God in a way that it's maybe not natural for us to do it. And uh, we've got to we've got to consider we've got to consider how it how it really is supposed to work. We have to we have to submit to. To God, um, you know, acknowledging acknowledging Jesus, which could include literal baptism. And if you have the ability, I think probably it should include literal baptism and allowing the spirit then to lead you 
um, which I think, you know, even in the Old Testament, the spirit was there. But, you know, the salvation was all still through grace and such. But but uh, the focus, the focus was so much on or was perceived being so much on it's what you do. And Jesus is putting across the idea here that it's 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 not what you do. It Well, what you do is going to be the result. Yeah, that's a super good point, because Jesus calls Nicodemus out for not knowing uh, you know, how could you not know you were supposed to be born again? You know, as though that was part of their their teaching already. And it was. And because Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham, you know, the Bible is very clear about the fact that, you know, the, the law doesn't come for 400 years. So mm-hmm. always, always, always salvation was by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And people got confused and tried to fulfill the law themselves. They tried to do works to make God like them. But God keeps saying, I already like you. I'm trying to save you. But you cannot do works that will save you. You will turn into something bad if you try to do this yourself. And it's true. Like, look what happened to Paul. Paul tries very, very hard to live a righteous life. He is, you know, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I knew all the right things to do. So I started murdering the children Mm. of Christ. (laughs) And Mm. he eventually becomes this horrific person who's killing people simply because they believe that Jesus is the son of God. And it's only when Christ approaches him and he is born again, that he becomes a redeemed human being. And before that, he's extremely dangerous because he's trying to live by the law. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fascinating. And looking back on himself, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So something new, something new that uh, people have to wrap their brains around. And Jesus yeah. is just getting ready to start trying to teach this to people. And it's fascinating. It's, it, it is, there's so much to unpack from it and think about. Um, I had intended for us to go a lot further than this today. <laughs> But I also suspected, I also suspected that this chapter was going to be chock full of good conversation because there's so yeah. much here. And and so from that, I guess I'm going to leave us with that, with that contemplation of us considering the new things that are happening here, the new ways that God wants us to go, that Jesus was getting ready to teach. And so next week we will continue this chapter, uh, John, into well, we'll finish John chapter 3. We just got a little bit about John the Baptist. And we'll get into John chapter 4. And I suspect that chapter itself is going to have plenty for us to talk about. Because as I'm looking at that, I got three pages of, cha- of uh, notes just on John chapter 4. So I think uh, this is going to be a great place for us to stop for this week. And so for our listeners, while you are reading forward in John, finishing John chapter 3 and reading forward in John chapter 4, remember you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. Look us up on Facebook. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.